I'm Maria Wilson. And I'm Danielle Mendikian. And we are scientists. We love science. Yeah, we do. So when we aren't doing it, the next best thing is to talk about science. And what's really awesome is that we're surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in research. So there is always someone interesting to talk to, but there's never much time just to chat at work. That's why we are so excited to be hosting this podcast. We're going to step away from the labs today to talk to other scientists about the cool stuff they are thinking about, working on, and imagining. As well as how some of these discoveries just might lead to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. The show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Hi, everyone. I'm excited for our show today because we're going to get the chance to talk about bacteria. And I know everyone's been talking about viruses for the last couple of years, but bacteria are really important bugs and there's a lot of relevance in how we would treat them, especially in the wake of COVID. So for today, we've invited two guests with very different expertise that are totally complementary and are gonna get us up to date on what's happening with treatment of bacteria. So I'd like to welcome Melissa Peck, an infectious disease physician, and Mike Kohler, a research chemist. Welcome to the bar. Awesome, thank, thank you. you. So, Cards on the table, this is our third episode on bacteria. But we are totally fascinated by them and there's so many different aspects in which we can discuss how to treat them and what are some of the challenges we face in healthcare. But what about you? From your different perspectives, what's your take on bacteria? I mean, I think as a chemist, when I think about bacteria, from the perspective of looking for vulnerabilities, uh, for looking at the ways in which they are adapt incredibly rapidly to the things that we're trying, uh, you just get glimpses uh, of the competition that is happening in their own environment and the ways in which that they are transferring these genetic elements among the different bacteria to allow them to adapt to a new environment. And I just look at them with um, the awe of, of someone who has only begun to scratch at the surface of what they can do and, and to understand the complex ways in which we are actually living in a bacterial world. Yeah, I share Mike's awe about bacteria. And I think we need to treat them with respect when we think about antibiotics. And, and Alexander Fleming actually recognized this. So when penicillin was coming into commercial use, he had this quote, the thoughtless person playing with penicillin treatment is morally responsible for the death of the man who succumbs to infection with the penicillin resistant organism. I hope that evil can be averted. And then five years later, we had penicillin resistance. So speaking of Alexander Fleming, it might be cool if you just take a step back and remind our listeners of how penicillin was discovered. Sure, sure. And actually, the funny thing is I went, I was at visiting a collaborator on this project in England, and we went to the hospital in London, and there's a plaque on the wall. Alexander Fleming's lab was right up here, I think the second or third floor above the ground where we were, and it's literally where he was. He went on vacation. He didn't put away his stuff. Petri dishes sat on the lab bench, and uh, a mold came in. I mean, uh, hypothetically through the window, whatever, a mold grows. And he noticed something that had been seen before but never really followed up on was that the bacteria that he was growing on the plate didn't get close to the mold. There was some zone in between them where they couldn't grow. And so he, although that was generally known, he was the first to really carefully follow up on that observation and was able to, over time, isolate something, which ultimately became 
known as penicillin, which prevented the growth of bacteria. And so that launched sort of the antibiotic era. That's so wild. It also like gives me hope that on those days that I'm like trash at the bench, that I'm gonna come back and something really amazing is gonna be there, but hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, Mike, you mentioned that bacteria are actually competing with each other. How does that work? Because usually when I'm thinking about this for like, you know, cancer cells and immune cells, I kind of get what the tools and weapons are. But how does that happen with bacteria? Are we talking about chemical warfare? I don't think you can call it anything else. Uh, these bacteria are um, competing in a very, you know, confined environment wherever they uh, are living. And there's only one, a limited amount of food that they can get at. And so they will secrete things into their environment to suppress the growth of other bacteria, to flat out kill these other bacteria. It is um, an E. coli, eat E. coli, world. no, it's probably not Cut quite throat. that. <laughs> yeah. It's a coli, E. coli, eat E. coli world. Yeah, that it's doesn't cute. really work. But uh, it's a brutal, brutal environment. And the bacteria that survive, just given the speed at which they reproduce, the ones that will you know, exist, the ones that we see today are the ones that have survived uh, a few million years of, of combat for the limited resources in the environment that they live. And that's, that's a pretty amazing, amazing way to, to sort of look at just uh, a spot of dirt on the ground outside in your lawn. <laughs> I definitely won't look at it the same. Yeah, so what, what Mike described and what Alexander Fleming realized is that bacteria have this intrinsic ability to compete with each other. And so that's a concept of intrinsic resistance. So they've evolved mechanisms at survival of the fittest. And so they have these mechanisms where they are able to secrete compounds that then kill each other. And most of our current antibiotics are actually modifications of those. So, wow, is that how antibiotics are actually um, developed or discovered? Do we just kind of grow different populations of bacteria next to each other and look for those kind of killing zones and, and go from there? So that has been done, right? So that's the classic uh, Salman Waxman method for discovering oh. antibiotics. So he became convinced, and he was absolutely right, that soil bacteria were out there duking it out. It's a rich environment. And so these bacteria were literally coming up with the most powerful warheads, the most powerful chemical weapons against one another. And in that intense competitive environment, the weapons got better and better. And so what he did was he had every single person who went on vacation bring back soil from wherever they went. So if you go to a beach, mm -hmm. if you go to Tibet hiking, if you wherever you went, you had to bring them back. And then what he did was he put began a process by which they cultured fungi, bacteria, whatever they could find in those soils. Mm -hmm. And they checked them to see, in more or less exactly the same way Alexander Fleming did, petri dishes, is there any inhibition? And if there was something in those bacteria that was producing uh, something that acted against the bacteria that were kind of their test case, then they would follow up on it. That's really cool that they were able to even find them in this way. But what kind of challenges did they face when they tried following up on it? So the difficulty that Waxman and crew had was that when you produce these bacteria, when you grew them, they were out of the soil. They were on a Petri dish. They didn't necessarily make the same toxins. They didn't have the same competition for nutrients that they did in their sort of ancestral home of the forest floor. 
And so what they would end up doing was not producing the antibiotic because there was nobody to fight against. There were no other bacteria in the Petri dish. Uh. And so over time, um, we have had to develop methods to induce them uh, to produce these toxins. And that was certainly part of what Waxman did was develop these systems for expressing the bacteria under conditions in which they would produce the antibiotics. But nowadays, we actually look for it on a genetic level too. We just say, we don't actually care what the bacteria are interested in making. Let's just look at their whole genome and see, do they have the tools in them in order uh, to produce something that would be of interest to us? And we have a yeah. decent idea of what those, what the, the genetic machinery is that would be required to produce antibiotics. And so we can just look at whether a given strain has that. Hi, Danielle. Hey, Danielle. Hey, yeah. What I love about the Fleming story is just the serendipity. Have you, in your career, experienced such serendipity in, in anything that you were researching? I wish. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I haven't been so lucky to have that great serendipitous discovery, but it's sometimes a trip when you think about it. One part is that, you know, for all of the discoveries, I wish that there was some way to like anonymously ask scientists about how they got to, to that discovery, right? I'd like to see like with honest answers, what percentage of it was like through what they say over like coffee talk, how much of it was purely driven by what they've read the literature and how much of it was actually serendipitous. The other part of it that I always think about too is, you know, when you hear like those backstories of a discovery, those are the discoveries that became really popular either through the contribution itself or through like, you know, mainstream media. But there's also all these really important discoveries that are slowly filling up our picture of knowledge for, for biological processes. And because those aren't maybe as famous or widespread, we don't get to hear all of those stories. So I bet you there's a lot more of these serendipitous, lucky scientists out there that I've, I've never heard their stories for, but it'd be, it'd be cool to kind of get some insight to that. Maybe to kind of help listeners understand, could you try to paint a picture for us what it would be like if we didn't have antibiotics? The example that I always like to give people is Abraham Lincoln's son had a blister um, playing, you know, got a blister on his foot playing tennis uh, on the lawn of the White House and it became infected and he died in a week or two from a, a you know, a virulent bacterial infection. This was somebody who had access to absolutely the best medicine of his time. He was the son of the president. That's the world that we could end up in. Um, and we know what it looks like because it was just about 100 years ago um, that we started to have access to these tools that made it possible for people to survive um, a bacterial infection that got out of control. And so we, we know what it looks like and we're working really hard to make sure that that does not happen again. And we wouldn't be able to do things like treat people for cancer, do bone marrow transplants, replace joints. Routine surgery, every surgical patient gets a dose of antibiotics at the time of incision. So to Mike's point, anything that puts you at risk for infection, we wouldn't be able to do. Oof, that is a horrible picture that you're painting. Um, so I guess my next question is kind of related to something Mike had initially brought up. It was his awe of adaptability of bacteria. How does that play into, um, into all of this? So what, what Mike is talking about is called acquired resistance, and it's really the foundation of antimicrobial resistance in clinical medicine. 
And it is this ability for these bacteria to transmit pieces of DNA that have resistance mechanisms on them. And, and so what's so fascinating to me is all of this is just part of the natural ecosystem, that you have all of these bacteria living out there competing with each other, making compounds to talk to each other and kill each other, and they are able to transfer the genes that make those compounds. And that's how we learn about new antibiotics, but it's also how we get in the situation where then the antibiotics we make no longer work. So we need to develop antibiotics to try to stay ahead of that, but what are the strategies that we have to, to approach this? So there are two different approaches to uh, novel antibiotics. So I'll start with the one where I don't have as much experience, but is probably the more common path, which is you start with something that works, you understand why it no longer works against these bacteria. So the classic example is that bacteria that are susceptible to penicillins or other um, penicillin-like antibiotics produce an enzyme that very efficiently destroys the antibiotic. And so there's a whole field that comes up with either penicillin-like molecules that are very resistant to that destruction, or a second molecule that just jams up the machinery that these bacteria produce to destroy the penicillins. So that's one whole field, which is take something we know that works, that we know is great, that's safe, and we then try to fix it for the case that the bacteria have had. Uh, that, 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 where the bacteria have developed a counter move, basically. Do you mean like you would have your antibiotic plus something to protect it, so as a combination? Sometimes, yeah. So that's one very common approach is antibiotic plus something to sort of make that antibiotic function better. Um, and then the, 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 the downside there is that you are fighting against the uh, evolution of bacteria. That's not a great fight. <laughs> they are really fast, right? I mean, when you show up in a hospital, you have 10 to the ninth bacteria in you. A bunch of those have mutations all over their genome. And so it is very possible that one of them will have some resistance. This is part of the problem that we're seeing uh, with people evolving resistance during therapy, uh, in addition to the resistance that sometimes comes in from outside. The second approach to developing new antibiotics is to say, you know what, There's some. I want to look for something that the bacteria have never seen before. I want to completely backdoor them. And so that's the approach that we took where we've taken this molecule that we sort of found in a bacterium that lived on a forest floor in Africa. And what we did was we looked at that molecule, we took it apart piece by piece and asked, what does each piece of this molecule do? And then we sort of put it together, back together with pieces that were optimized, that were better at each function that the, the, that the molecule was doing. That's the approach that we've taken in developing and optimizing this molecule sort of from scratch. And now that's a, that's a molecule that these bacteria haven't seen. They haven't, they haven't been on that forest floor in Africa, so they don't, most bacteria, in fact, none of the bacteria, and we've looked to this point at thousands and thousands of strains of bacteria, none of them have any resist, inherent resistance. To, to these molecules. And so that's the real hope for developing these new types of antibiotics, no, completely novel antibiotics, is that you don't already have that pre-existing resistance. Now that's not to say that the bacteria won't come up with something. Inevitably, 
right? I think given everything we've been talking about today, you will find resistance to any antibiotic that's used widely. But the hope is we reset the clock. We start over with a clean slate. But I guess like, what is that clock gonna look like if the bacteria, if the bacteria are able to evolve so quickly? Um, how would that look long term if you, even though you're doing the reset the clock and you're doing the back door, you know, is it more hopeful because it's so unnatural that it's unlikely that people are going to be sharing the bacteria that would become resistant to that? Or how would that, how does that play out? Yeah, well, Mike brings up a good point around where are new antibiotics being developed. And so there's about 40 antibiotics in the clinical pipeline now, and most of those are being targeted towards known resistance mechanisms. So essentially where you have an antibiotic, the bacteria figures out how to make an enzyme to chew up that antibiotic and destroy it. So then you make a new antibiotic that now is not a target for that enzyme, but it's always a chicken and egg game. And there's we know there's over a thousand of these enzymes out there that can chew up these antibiotics. So where we really need to focus is on new classes and on innovation. And it will take time for those classes to develop resistance, you know, 50 years. But the other point it brings up is that antibiotics alone will not solve the AMR crisis. It has to be antibiotics paired with antimicrobial stewardship. And that's what makes this area so unique and interesting is we develop drugs that then we are responsible to making sure that they are used appropriately. So the right patient, the right dose, the right time, the right duration. So is that like another way of, of also kind of thinking about this is that, you know, as long as we kind of limit some of the use, that's going to extend that clock out longer before it, they start to be able to evolve and become resistant to the bacteria. Exactly. Yeah. We need to ensure that novel antibiotics are developed, but we also need to ensure they're used appropriately. The other thing that hospitals are doing is called infection control. And that's where we make sure that people wash their hands, they don't re, you know, reuse PPE, that, that they don't transmit these bacteria between patients. Because most of the multidrug resistant bacteria that we're seeing now are being seen within hospitals. And we, and we see this in COVID-19 where we're seeing outbreaks in hospitals and multi-drug resistant bacteria. And the thought is that during COVID-19, there was limited resources and that unfortunately that led to these bacteria being transmitted between patients more frequently than prior to COVID-19. You know, you know, now that we mentioned the big CO, right? <laughs> um, one thing that I'm kind of curious from both of your perspective is after seeing the way, cause I think so there's development challenges for every area of, of therapeutics, right? And so maybe before I ask my big COVID question, let me first ask you, maybe from we can start on the chemistry side, Mike, what challenges do you come across in terms of development of these therapeutics, different antibiotics? So I think the biggest challenge that we face is that, I guess it's twofold. One, we're kind of walking a relatively new path. There's a very well understood path for taking your improved um, aminoglycoside or 
penicillin, I'm throwing out known, well-understood drug classes, there's a pretty good, pretty well-walked path for running those through the clinic. We know what the problems are that can crop up if you are overdosed or, um, you know, sometimes there are um, people who are allergic to penicillins, for example. So we have some sense of the risks because those molecules have been used for 50 years. Okay, so it's clear that we definitely need to be developing antibiotics to stay ahead of that. But what are the strategies that we have to, to approach this? I see Millicent smiling as you're saying this. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, developing new antibiotics is, is a scientific and economic challenge. Mike spoke to finding new chemical matter, the amount of med chem that goes into making that matter into something that you can deliver to patients. And the fo focus on innovation, that we really need novel chemical classes. So to, to Mike's point, it's harder to develop those. We don't know the safety profile of those. We don't know the efficacy profile when we get into patients. The other challenge is economic in this space. I think because we're in a space with stewardship where we're making new antibiotics for last line use, they're public health good. It makes it challenging for uh, companies to stay active in this space and de develop these new antibiotics. Can you think of maybe, um, this might be too broad of a question, but can you think of anything that might kind of change? Because I, I get what you're saying, like from the economic standpoint, you're like, okay, we're gonna put a lot of money into something, but we're also gonna try to really hard to limit the use. Yeah, it, back, back to COVID-19, that is such an excellent example of why investing in an infrastructure now will help us. So I think what you saw with COVID-19 as a result of investment into an infrastructure for antiviral development. So people were looking at hepatitis B, hepatitis C, other coronaviruses, and we were actually then able to rapidly take that technology and pivot to have a vaccine within a year, which is completely amazing. And so if we invest now in that infrastructure for antibiotic development, then that will help us 20 or 30 years from now. As an infectious disease physician, I often think, what is gonna be that new pathogen in 20 years? Because the bugs that we're seeing in the hospital right now, 20 years ago, those were not bugs that we worried about. But the resistance mechanisms shared between these bugs are the common thread. So I think by now focusing on how do we better understand the physiology of these bugs? How do we better understand how to make new antibiotics, we can then use that technology and we'll be able to rapidly pivot when a new pathogen comes up. I think it's an important question because it's this, and I think a lot of more people, given what's happened during COVID, like, you know, I never think about infectious disease, but now I'm starting to think about it in a different way. And it just kind of seems like the perfect time to try to change some much needed, you know, mentalities about what we do, how we do, and why. In order to preserve powerful antibiotics for those few cases where they're needed, we need to not use them in the, in the early stages for just somebody walking in with a sniffle, um, unless, of course, that's needed. Uh, so what we need to do as a, as a community is come up with a way that we can both support the research that is needed in order to, to, the very expensive research that's needed to come up with new therapies, 
but at the same time, avoid the fate, right? Melicent and I have talked about this in the past. A number of drug companies have come with new antibiotics onto the market in just the past three to five years and almost immediately gone out of business. There are complex reasons for this, but the fundamental problem is once they make the drug, once it's approved and demonstrated to be safe and effective, and the FDA says, yes, you have our blessing to go sell it, they don't sell any of it because the physicians quite reasonably are saving it for the cases where they really, really need it. And that is kind of the, the, the crux of the problem with antibiotic drug development. So at launch, many companies experience what we call the valley of death. They spent 15 years make, developing their antibiotic, getting it commercialized, but then it's used in a small number of people at launch. Yet the companies still have to keep the lights on, they still have to make the drug, they often have to run post-marketing trials to generate the data that physicians need in order to use these drugs in, in the critically ill patients. And so we've seen a number of companies go out of business over the last five years. And I think that's something I want people to really understand, that this is a call to arms. Antimicrobial resistance is a critical problem now. I mean, I don't know if this is like a, a naive question or not, but it kind of seems to me that we should be trying to look towards government agencies or, or some sort of public partnership in order to address this, you know, similarly to what we did to respond to the COVID pandemic. I agree, and public-private partnership is working to get things to launch. The problem is really post-launch, that those funds aren't there to help keep, help sustain companies through the 10 years that it's going to take for them to start selling enough drug to be sustainable. And, and I really love the analogy, which is the fire extinguisher model. The antibiotics need to be seen as something that's good for the public. So you don't have a fire in your house every day, but you pay taxes so that you have a fire department when you have a fire. And that's the way we need to look at antibiotics, that you may never be in the ICU and need one of these. But when you are, it's too late to go out and buy your fire extinguisher. Danielle, I remember when I was a grad student, sometimes feeling really overwhelmed when I thought about the, the need for treatments in a disease area or feeling this pressure to make a lot of progress. Have you ever felt that way or talked to other scientists who feel that way? I feel like I wake up like that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really natural stance to take as a scientist because I mean, not to over-romanticize the job, but like a lot of us show up to work because we really care about it, or there is something where we were really affected, either us ourselves or like, you know, our family members that were impacted by disease. I think we all carry it to some degree with us, and we do kind of like keep ourselves in some way motivated by knowing that there's people who need something. So I think that that's just a common stress that just kind of live with it. Kind of is a good thing because it keeps you present and keeps you motivated to, to do what needs to be done. Right. Even though we've covered gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria in the past on the show, um, could I ask you just to give like a really quick blip about what the difference between those two are? When we talk about antibiotics, we typically talk about uh, antibiotics that focus on primarily on one of two types of bacteria. There are the gram-positive bacteria and the gram-negative bacteria. The gram-positive bacteria are affected by the widest range of antibiotics. Um, we have the most tools available for us to deal with those gram-positive bacteria. 
the gram-negative uh, gram bacteria, we have far fewer tools. And the reason that we have a, a smaller set of tools for gram-negative bacteria is just how they're built. You can think of the gram-positive bacteria as having a, a, a cell membrane that prevents some, provides some resistance to these drugs getting in and doing what they need to do to the bacteria to kill them. Gram-negative bacteria are kind of like your medieval fortress where they have constructed both a castle wall and a moat. So the things that you want to do to breach the outer wall of the, uh, uh, the gram-negative bacteria will fail to get across the moat. And here in this example, in the analogy, basically what I'm saying is your outer membrane uh, of gram-negative bacteria prevents uh, non-polar things from getting in, things that are kind of greasy. And the inner membrane is exactly the opposite. It prevents things that have a charge from getting in. And so the combination of those two things excludes almost everything that we have in our, our arsenal. And so that is a key challenge in developing uh, antibiotics for gram-negative bacteria and is why the set of tools that we have is so much smaller. And, and clinically, the bacteria that are on the WHO and CDC threat list right now are largely gram-negatives. So these are bacteria like Enterobacterales, which are actually just part of our gut microbiome. But every time you take a course of antibiotics, all of those bacteria in your gut are exposed to that. And as Mike said, they divide rapidly and they get mutations. And so then the bacteria that are resistant to those antibiotics that are, you're giving to yourself, they tend to grow. The other bacteria that we worry about are Acinetobacter and Pseudomonas. And these are really interesting because 20 years ago, they were just living in the water and the soil. But they figured out how to pick up resistance mechanisms and colonize people in the hospital. So we know that within 72 hours of being admitted to a hospital, your own biome changes to that to reflect the bacteria that are in the hospital. And so then when your defenses break down, for example, you're put on a ventilator with COVID-19, those bacteria start to grow. And so then that's where you get these multidrug resistant gram-negative infections. I think that's also a good way to highlight that it's, you know, if we think about antibiotics, we're thinking, oh, you, you got sick, you went in for whatever, and this is where you're gonna start to need them. But then it's so many other situations, you're actually susceptible to getting different kinds of very scary infections. Anytime you break your skin, right? So that can be a surgery or anytime you suppress the immune system, right? So in cancer chemotherapies, um, um, a huge number of things that we consider to be um, an unpleasant but necessary thing you go through. You know, maybe you have a, a deep cut or um, uh, maybe you have some disease where you need to do some immunosuppression. We have, you know, lots of autoimmune diseases that uh, we see currently. In all of those situations, you make yourself more susceptible by either removing the skin barrier or by depressing the immune system a bit. Um, in all of those cases, you're more susceptible to bacterial infection. And so you want to have some ability to deal with uh, a bacterial infection should that set in. And so again, that's where you want to have that fire extinguisher at the, at the ready. Yeah, an antibiotics are really the foundation of modern medicine. There was a study that showed at any single time in a hospital, 50% of patients are in antibiotics. 
Wow. And I can think of very few other drug classes that are used, maybe normal saline for, for hydration. And so they're amazing because they allow us to give patients chemotherapy, to do hip replacement, you know, to, um, to immunosuppress people with biologics. So I think it's really understanding that in order to treat other conditions, we need to have antibiotics. Even though there are a lot of challenges for development of antibiotics, what do you think is most important for that new scientist rolling into the field for them to be aware of and, and their pitch for why they should absolutely be working on what you do? Yes, as a physician at the bedside, I can't emphasize enough how important the work that you're doing in the lab is. We have such a gap right now in innovative new classes of antibiotics. And I don't think these Me Too antibiotics being developed will be enough to save patients in the next 20 to 40 years. I think that it is hard to find anything that is more scientifically fulfilling uh, than working on antibiotics. We have uh, an amazing array of tools from uh, the chemistry that we're doing at the bench to the structural biology that we are doing. We are pushing out the forefront uh, of, of, of what is possible in terms of understanding how uh, to develop antibiotics and how to deal with the, the, the new targets that we're uh, interrogating here. And I think that Although there are challenges on the, the economic end, we feel like we can make a difference and we can really uh, have an amazing amount of great science uh, driving that forward in the meantime. I also think like, you know, if I had heard about this when I was like coming out of school, the most um, exciting part to me would be like, it's, it's such a cool thing to be able to go into a space where you're able to totally create a new path forward because that type of opportunity sometimes is kind of rare because as scientists, we're always like, this is what was published, so I'm gonna do this in an incremental change, but to be like, nah, the hell with it. I'm gonna do everything piece by piece and really just change the way we're approaching it. Like that's like goosebump worthy, right? Like that's, that's really exciting to me. And you get to take that compound and then understand how do, how do I make it safer? Like one of the things that we see in antibiotics is that they cause kidney toxicity. And there's such an important research field there to understand why, how do we mitigate that? What are the pathways? So it's not just developing the chemistry of the molecule, which is important, but it's understanding all of the things that the molecules do, might do in a human, because those are the things that often prevent us from bringing these antibiotics into patients. I'm super curious, like, what are the chemical modifications that you're having to make, to, especially for if you're going to target gram-negative bacteria? Because a lot of those, just even having, like, charge patches, let's say, are going to dramatically change, like, the volume of distribution once it's administered. I mean, that's... I'm very curious, and I will probably stalk you later, because, like, that's such a cool thing, and it's so interesting, and it, it also has really widespread implications to other types of therapeutics. So I, I guess what I would say is just sort of on that atom by atom level, what we have always followed was making the, the molecules work better against the bacteria that we were concerned about. We started out with these molecules that had a function against a, a gram-positive bacterium that we weren't very concerned with. But 
As we introduced new pieces, we continually saw, oh, this gives us a little more activity against E. coli, or this gives us a little better activity against Klebsiella. And so it turned out that although this is usually a big problem in chemistry, these molecules are quite big compared to what you would see, like an aspirin molecule or mm -hmm. something like that. Our molecules are really enormous compared to those. But the one advantage that that brings with it is that this part, the northwest corner of our molecules, doesn't really know much about what's happening at the southeast corner of the molecule. And so what we're able to do is swap in the pieces that work best in each of those sort of quadrants and put them together. And then the, the function is additive. And that was actually something that we don't usually see on a small molecule program. Usually you sort of tinker with part A and it sort of tinker, it messes with what you were trying to do in part B. But these molecules were really kind of like more Legos. You put together this and that piece and all the bricks fit together. And the overall um, outcome was positive in all the ways that we had sort of built into the individual pieces. Another question that has been on my mind is, what do y'all think the future is gonna hold for different types of antibiotics and, and in the field in general? And maybe even thinking like near versus far. Outside of the near term, I think the good news is that there are a bunch of technologies that we already have access to that could dramatically change how we deal with uh, antibiotic therapy. If we can apply some of the tools that we've developed to understand at a molecular level, what is the bacterium that is infecting me? What is it susceptible to? To make those things happen faster. All of these things exist, they just don't exist in every hospital all the time that lets you say, okay, I need to avoid this drug and I need to use that drug. If we can get to a point where we just make all of that happen faster and more accurately, we can really take big, big steps towards preserving the antibiotics that we have and making sure that new ones that we come up with are not compromised by the same failings that, that have sort of riddled uh, the, the, the antibiotic uh, field for the, past, for, for the first 50 years, say. So I'm optimistic that people recognize the value of being prepared. And I think that's what comes out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think to successfully tackle antimicrobial resistance, it is gonna require coordinated action. We saw this with COVID-19 between industry, academia, healthcare institutions, governments, regulators, and payers. Looking forward 50 years, I hope Mike can deliver some new innovative classes. I think rapid diagnostics are a huge area that we need to invest in. We need to understand what is the bug the patient has and more importantly, what is that susceptible to in a much faster turnaround time than we currently have. So I would, I would say new classes and rapid diagnostics are really the focus in the next 50 years. Do either of you think that there's ever gonna be a possibility of having a superbug or a bacteria-driven pandemic? Yeah, I think antimicrobial resistance is much more predictable than, than what we see, for example, with coronaviruses in a pandemic. So I don't see a superbug where we're gonna see the, the type of devastation that we've had with, with COVID-19. Because for most people, antibiotics that we have work for 90% of patients. But we're really talking about that 10% where they don't. 
And we're also projecting forward 30, 40 years from now when the antibiotics we have today probably won't continue to work. And as Mike said, research and development in antibiotics is a long-term game. And so we need to start now to make sure we're prepared for the future. What is it about bacteria and antibiotics that got you hooked on it? So growing up, I was always really interested in, in nature and plants. And, and in college, I actually worked in a lab on genetics of tomatoes. So I went to graduate school after college, and I ended up joining a lab that works on plant bacterial interactions. And I ended up working on the bacteria because they grew so much faster. And, and the project was fascinating. It was about how bacteria release chemical signals and talk to the plants. And I just love the, the relationship factor of that. So when I went to medical school, infectious diseases was a really natural fit for me. And I just really love the triad of, of the patient, the bacteria, and the treatment. And you have to think, like, where is that bug going to go? Where does it want to live? How does it want to replicate? And, and I think infectious diseases, you're, you're um, sort of like a private detective trying to figure out what is going on with that patient. I think I was also, my interest in, in, in antibiotics and, and working in the field came from uh, having done, like I've always been kind of the weird chemist who doesn't just want to mix chemicals together. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of things like develop assays and I looked at NMR structures of molecules. And so I, I was, I enjoy doing the bench chemistry, but I also always wanted to learn about other things. And one of the things that had always fascinated me uh, was just the underpinnings of, of all the biology that we do now in terms of cloning and all, and all of that, of course, takes place in bacteria. So I was pretty familiar with uh, working with bacteria, like sequencing, all of those um, things that you do with bacteria. And so then when we started to look into antibiotics, I started to appreciate the richness of the biology that the bacteria have developed to deal with antibiotics and all of that. I was just completely sold and I have, uh, I've worked on it for, like I said, almost 10 years now and I see no signs of, of my curiosity being sated. There are always amazing things to work on in the field. This was fantastic. Thank you both for coming. It's been absolutely great getting to know you and hearing about what gets you excited about coming to work every day. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This has been fun. That was a great episode. What was your favorite part? You know, um, one of the things I really liked about this take on bacteria was it kind of feels like there was, um, I don't know how you say this, but it was almost like there's a kind of functional structure that we talked about on the science side, like how you know the bacteria are adapting and kind of the drivers for that. But then we also touched on something that I really care about is kind of understanding the policy of how we deal with these and kind of what are those challenges. So I really liked that this was, it felt like a, an episode that we were able to kind of cover from start to finish. How should we be implementing strategies from like, you know, infrastructure and like, you know, uh, policy perspective, why it really matters, especially timely considering the COVID pandemic, and as well as like from, from the bacteria. So it's almost like there's a call to arms for the bacteria to evolve, but there's also this kind of call to arms for us to respond in an intelligent way. And I'm curious to see how this, you know, evolves. <laughs> not That was not meant to be a pun, but how this evolves over time. 
Is the adaptability of bacteria at all similar to the kind of mutations that you experience in cancer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, so I'm really interested, like, from the cancer perspective, dealing with these solid tumors, because sometimes from a treatment perspective, it's like this fortress that you got to get all your key players in, and you're always against the clock because you always have to figure out the best way to target these cells for destruction. And at the same time, you're working against their natural evasion mechanisms that kind of keep them always changing and evolving. And so that's a really hot topic. So another cool takeaway from this whole episode is trying to think like, what can we leverage from what we've understood about, you know, bacterial heterogeneity and evasion mechanisms, and then try to have that translational um, uh, perspective for cancer biology. Let's take a grab bag question. We have a really good one from Alessandro M. He wants to ask, what was the most surprising thing to have happened to you in the lab? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that could go from a couple of different perspectives. There's me being goofy, where once I accidentally locked myself in a deli case. Um, For those of you who deal with that, yes, it is possible. (laughs) Um, The other perspective would be scientifically. Sometimes when we are developing therapeutics, we kind of follow this pattern. And it, it makes sense, right? You start with something that you know that works and you figure out how to translate it over. But when you start approaching things under different circumstances, that can just dramatically change without expectation. And so, for example, there's this one type of of cancer immunotherapy that I'm really interested in where it's a molecule that'll, you know, has two parts to it. One part will target a cancer cell. The other part will flag down a person's own immune system to then come and kill it. So from a design perspective, we always thought the stronger you bind, the better you're going to get. But when you put these types of therapeutics with that design perspective um, into a a, a living system, you start to have this natural competition. And so what we've discovered and we've been able to publish is that you really have to fine tune the balance of how tightly it goes after these two targets. And where the surprise comes from is, again, we always want to build off previous work. And we think that that's always going to be like the straight application as, as you kind of chip along, but it really doesn't. And as we start to get into more kind of um, difficult treatment areas, it really pushes you to challenge what you know. And that's our show. Please subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing from you. So if you have any questions or comments, find us at podcast at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E dot com. And now for me, back to stock and sales. <laughs> <laughs>